Supervisor Nathan Fletcher explains San Diego's new vote centers. You know, it is a little bit of a change, but so much has changed. Again, just in the number of folks who now choose to mail in their ballots. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The county moves forward on a new climate action plan. It is not just your generation and my generation at risk, but future generations. San Diegans are asked to cut water use by 10% and will examine the controversial political clout of Defend East County. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. We're all discovering that the fallout from the pandemic has changed a lot of things, from disrupted airline flights to empty grocery shelves. In San Diego, it's also permanently changed the way we vote. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors has approved a plan to replace neighborhood polling places with large-scale vote centers. Nearly 200 vote centers around the county will be available for in-person voting and mail-in ballot drop-off, and they'll be open for voting at least several days before a scheduled election. Joining me with more on the vote centers is Chair of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher, and welcome to the program. Hey, thank you, Maureen. I appreciate being on. This is a big change for people who've been used to going to maybe a neighbor's house or a local school or church to do their voting. Why do we need voting centers? Well, I I think one, I think our democracy is strongest when the most people participate. And the counties that adopted the vote center model early uh, showed increased turnout. Uh, They showed increased turnout over the counties that did not. The second thing is, I think if we can make it more convenient, if we can make it easier, if we can make it simpler, cleaner, then that's also good for the health of our democracy. And I tried to do this uh, two two plus years ago. And, you know, the board thought it was a little too fast, a little too soon. And then and then, as you point out, with the pandemic, we had a recall election under a vote center model. And so everyone's already done it one time. And with with almost 90 percent of folks choosing to mail in their ballots, uh, you know, that remaining 10 percent, giving them more options on more days uh, where they can go to any one of these locations. Uh, and cast their ballot we've seen can 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 be good for the health of our democracy and good for our county and i'm glad we're moving forward every voter used to have a designated polling place will voters now be able to go to any vote center they want to that's one of the beauties of vote centers is is you can go to anyone and there will be hundreds of them throughout the county Uh, a grouping of them will be open for election day plus three days prior another grouping of them will be open for election day plus 10 days prior Um, But, you know, you could never go somewhere that wasn't your polling location. If you did, you had to cast a provisional ballot and it might not match up. Now the technology exists. You can show up, you can register, you can vote your neighborhood ballot with your local races uh, and have it have it be immediately counted. And so, you know, it is a little bit of a change, uh, but so much has changed again, just in the in the number of folks who now choose to mail in their ballots uh, this seems like a, a good step we can take. And, you know, again, we're joining the majority of California uh, residents who are already in counties who are doing this. 
And we just did it uh, in the recall election, and it, and it seemed to work work well. I just wanted to make that point uh, about mail-in ballots. We will still be getting those, right? Everyone will get an absentee or a mail-in ballot uh, with postage paid. You know, we used to call them absentee ballots because when it first started, you had to demonstrate that you would be absent from the state on election day. And then we've come around to just mailing them to everyone, postage paid. Uh, and, and again, we see almost 90% of folks are just choosing to mail them back in. But if you love voting in person, or if you want to drop it off, or if you want to change something, or you lose it, or you aren't sure, then we're going to have hundreds of locations. And you could go to the one closest to your work, closest to your kid's school, closest to your home. Uh, it, it won't matter which one you go to. Do we know yet where exactly the centers will be located, or is that something to be decided? Yeah, so we've directed the registrar voters. They're going to do a rigorous uh, community outreach and engagement process to work with community groups and 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 do advertisements and do engagement to let folks know uh, of this change. But a part of while they're doing that, we'll be doing the statistical analysis uh, to identify the locations where they need to be, and it's going to be based on population uh, and placing them, uh, you know, in locations in a fair uh, and equitable way, so that that every county resident has you know, equal access to, to a vote center. And when's the target date that we should start seeing these vote centers open up for voting? Well, so when we head into our June primary next year, uh, they will be opening uh, in advance of the June primary. You know, again, 30 days out, everyone will get their absentee ballot in the mail and you can mail that back in, uh, or you can go to a vote center. Uh, in addition to the vote centers, there's a lot of drop-off locations where people can drop off their uh, their their uh, mail-in ballot if they choose. And, you know, the, the, the change, you know, change is always a little bit hard, but when we know we're doing something that increases voter participation, uh, and when we know we're doing something that can increase individuals' convenience of, of being able to, to go to any one of these locations, uh, I think it's the right step. And I'm, I'm just really glad we're finally uh, moving forward as a county and the board supported this effort. Supervisor Fletcher, just a couple of quick questions more before you go, if I could. We learned yesterday that the White House is reaching out to counties about the imminent rollout of COVID vaccines for kids 5 through 11. How is San Diego preparing for that? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the last few weeks. I mean, every day, uh, even if it's not top of mind in the news, we're still working on COVID. Uh, We're going through a pretty robust education process with our vaccination sites. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different dosage. It's going to be a different instrument to administer it, uh, you know, working with so many of those so that we're ready to go. We do expect this in the coming weeks. Um, a little bit different than, than, you know, when we did the first rollout of the vaccines, you know, most folks will go to their pediatrician uh, or they will go to a pharmacy uh, or, uh, or a place where they would normally go to get their child vaccinated. As the county, we will maintain uh, great availability of, of vaccination sites if people would prefer to come to one of those. Uh, but it really is going to be a collaborative effort. And I think it's, uh, you know, going to be a, another positive step forward. I know my my 10-year-old son is the uh, only one of our kids who hasn't been able to get vaccinated. Uh, he can't wait. Uh, he every day is asking me if it's been approved, if he can get his shot or not. Um, and so we're really looking ahead to that, along with continuing to monitor the uh, uh, guidance around booster shots and the, the potential in the coming weeks for mixing uh, of, of different vaccines together. And so we continue to monitor, plan, coordinate, and then we'll update the public at the appropriate time when it's available. And on another subject coming up next on, on our midday show, we'll hear a report about the county moving forward on a climate action plan. But critics are wondering why it won't be finalized until 2023. Can you explain why? 
Well, because it's a big document and it, it's also, you know, the, the climate action plan is, is derived in large part um, from the regional housing needs assessment. And so we, we've got to figure out regionally what is the plan for how many housing units we will need in the county and Sandag still crunching some of that data. And so you can't develop a climate action plan to mitigate for development when you don't know how much development you're predicted to have in your jurisdiction. And, you know, in the past, you know, folks have rushed these things through and then you get challenged in court because they don't comply with the, the structure. It doesn't mean that we are not working to lower greenhouse gas emissions today. We absolutely are. Uh, we're working to do that. And it doesn't mean we're not going to build any housing. We're permitting and building housing as we go along. Uh, it just means that the guiding document that's going to get us to carbon neutrality in the 2030s and is going to get us to hit those greenhouse gas reduction goals over the coming decades uh, is going to take a couple years to make sure that we get it right. Uh, but there's so much that we can do in the interim to protect our environment and build housing. And, and we're going to we're going to plow full speed ahead and doing that appropriately. I've been speaking with the chair of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Maureen. There is a need for more housing, infrastructure, and transportation, but how can San Diego County accommodate growth while cutting greenhouse gas emissions? That's what supervisors weighed as they updated progress on the Climate Action Plan. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has been covering this and joins us to talk about how the county is reaching its goals. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Jade. So what did county staff have to say about the progress on the county's climate action plan in yesterday's update? Well, county staff came to the Board of Supervisors to let them know where they are in the process. And uh, that was really kind of a point of contention at the meeting uh, because they still seem to be in kind of like the first third of the effort and they don't expect to be done uh, this year uh, or not even until actually the end of next year. Uh, one of the uh, folks who came to the meeting um, to talk about the plan and encourage the supervisors also had this. Uh, this is Noah Harris of the Climate Action Camp, and he had this to say uh, about the process. We are deeply alarmed at the delay presented today, um, which will push the CAPS adoption into late 2023. As you've heard, we're in a climate emergency. We have to slash emissions as soon as possible to stop the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So he is basically saying that he wants to see this thing done faster. Um, county officials say they want to make sure they do it right uh, so that it will stand up to legal scrutiny. It seems like environmentalists, though, are saying that not having that climate action plan means the county is not addressing climate change or at least not fast enough. Is that the case? Well, supervisors countered that assertion. Uh, Nathan Fletcher said yesterday that, look, this doesn't mean that we're going to stop everything else we're doing. We're still going to try and reduce emissions with other policies and actions. We're still going to try uh, to be a little bit smarter about the growth that we approve uh, so that we can address the housing crisis without increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I think the key, though, to having this plan in place is it would set that clear uh, road roadmap uh, with benchmarks uh, for the county to shoot for. Okay, so let's talk more about the plan itself. What are some of the top line goals of the plan? Well, basically, what the county is mandated to do uh, by a piece of state legislation that passed several years ago is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 
and they have to cut them back by 80% by 2050. And county officials have kind of uh, added on to that. They say they would want to try and decarbonize San Diego County and, and get to a zero carbon space where if they are emitting carbon, um, they made up for it by uh, having mitigation projects that would reduce or sequester carbon uh, on the other end so that they have a zero uh, baseline. And they'd like that to happen sometime between 2035 and 2045. So they have some ambitious goals uh, and they are squarely uh, looking at this idea that uh, San Diego County's future is closely tied to the county's ability uh, to reduce its carbon footprint. One of the primary topics in the Climate Action Plan is where to build homes. Talk to us about that. Uh, Many of these things, as you might think, do not exist in a vacuum. It's not just cars. It's not just houses. But where to build homes can affect many other things. For example, if you build homes in clusters around transportation hubs, this idea of smart growth, what you're doing is uh, you're putting people into more walkable communities, which will reduce their reliance on cars and trucks and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If they are living close to where they work or where they go to school or where they need to shop, then that reduces the number of miles that they have to travel uh, if they have to travel miles at all uh, in a car to get to those places. Um, it's changing the way the county develops. And now there are members of the Board of Supervisors, County Supervisor Jim Desmond, who said yesterday that, look, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And he doesn't want people to forget that San Diego County was essentially built for the automobile. Roads and freeways, even though there seem to be the the nemesis uh, throughout all of this, are still going to be there, still going to be used, and still going to need um, attention and work. And what Desmond is saying is, is that we need to rely a little bit more on technology. And he would like to see the plan acknowledge that. He would, he's saying that, you know, if a lot of the automobiles become electric automobiles, they're not going to be creating these emissions and it's not going to be such a big issue. And he wants that acknowledged in the plan. And this isn't the county's first attempt at this. Previous boards have failed on approving a legally defensible plan. Uh, what were the primary issues with previous versions of this plan? The primary thing was that um, the county tried to account for these increases in greenhouse gas emissions that might be created by developments in the backcountry by swapping carbon credits somewhere outside of the country. That was the last plan uh, that was rejected in the courts. Uh, So a developer could build a housing development in a rural area, would create all these extra car trips, and in order to offset the car trips, they would buy carbon credits somewhere worldwide, uh, uh, you know, maybe supporting the rainforest in Brazil or, or some other location. And that would suffice uh, to offset this uh, additional greenhouse gas emissions that they've created. But what the judge said was uh, very clear. He said, look, um, this would not help the state meet its greenhouse gas reduction goals. Um, And he suggested that any kind of mitigation should happen locally if you're going to be increasing uh, greenhouse gases locally, because you can't track um, how well these global carbon credits are actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And there was also a request to keep environmental justice a priority. Can you talk about why that's important and how the county may be able to prioritize that? The thing about environmental justice here is is that uh, there's kind of this interesting intersection of greenhouse gases and pollution. 
They, most of the greenhouse gases do come from vehicles, cars, and trucks. And there are communities in San Diego County uh, that live near the port, that live near the international border, uh, that are already suffering the effects of pollution from economic activity. And they're trying to reduce uh, that pollution effect. And if they're successful in reducing the pollution, that also lessens the greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a it's a goal that kind of walks hand in hand uh, in that sense. And uh, Nora Vargas was saying yesterday that uh, she wanted to make sure that um, as areas like Otay Mesa are developed near the border, uh, that they keep in mind, the county keeps in mind that uh, any kind of development there has to be uh, cognizant of the potential impact of truck traffic so that those residents might uh, not be exposed to the kind of pollution that residents in Barrio Logan and National City are exposed to. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Park Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Officials with the San Diego County Water Authority are calling on the region to voluntarily cut its water usage by 10 percent. This comes after Governor Gavin Newsom announced yesterday he is extending the drought emergency across the state. So how much will a 10 percent reduction help? Joining me to talk about water usage is San Diego County Water Authority Water Resources Manager Jeff Stevenson. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. First, can you talk to us about the cause of the drought? Well, in Northern California and really across the state, we've had two years of dry weather, uh, rainfall's been low, and then above average temperatures, especially here in San Diego, we've had uh, the last 23 of the 24 months have been above average. So when you have above average temperatures and low rainfall, you can have water supply shortages, especially in Northern California, where they rely on the rainfall and the snowpack more so than Southern California. And Governor Newsom is asking counties to cut their usage by 15 percent. How did officials with the Water Authority come to decide on a 10 percent reduction instead? Well, in San Diego, for the Water Authority, we have what's called a water shortage contingency plan. And retail water suppliers have a similar plan. And for the Water Authority, we have six levels. So levels one through six. Level one is a voluntary level. And in the plan, it calls for a 10 percent reduction in water use. And we're actually targeting a 15% reduction consistent with the governor's goal 
but the plan is designed for 10%, but there's nothing to stop us going beyond the 10% in the voluntary level. Level two of the plan moves to mandatory. And since we're not in a mandatory situation, we're in voluntary, that's why we're asking our board to activate level one, which is set for 10%, but will actually target a 15% reduction. I see. And the water reduction goal isn't official yet. What needs to happen next? Thursday of next week, we will go to our board of directors and ask them to activate the plan. And then once they do that, level one will be in effect and we'll start to implement some of the actions that are under level one to get that 15% voluntary reduction. Compared to the North Coast cutting its water use by more than 18% and the San Francisco Bay Area by nearly 10%, why do you think Southern California was only able to reduce its water consumption by just 3% last year? It's really a different comparison, apples to oranges, if you if you want to compare Northern California to Southern California. In Northern California, they don't actually have water available to them, which makes getting a reduction a little bit easier. They don't have the snowpack and the rainfall in many areas. When you compare that to Southern California, uh, we have a long history of water use reductions. In fact, here in San Diego, we reduced our use by 50% over the last 30 years. Uh, when you look at it on a per person basis. So we've done a lot. And the other piece of that is when the governor asked for that 15%, and now they're uh, kind of looking and measuring it each month, the first month was July. And the, the request from the governor came during the middle of July. So there wasn't really an opportunity to ramp up those conservation programs. And the other piece is in August uh, is similar that it's really, we've looked at a month and a half of water use reductions. And to get additional savings in Southern California in a month and a half is really difficult because we've done so much already. And it's kind of squeezing that last drop of savings is going to take some more work. You know, when water cuts were voluntary, San Diego County actually had a slight increase in usage. Why do you think that is? That was really the first half of the month of July where there showed a slight increase. But when you look at the San Diego region, we were down just under 2%, which which really is amazing considering that water levels in San Diego in the region are still down at the levels they were when we came out of the last drought. So we didn't see a rebound after the last drought. It's kind of become the norm in San Diego uh, to be efficient, and that's where we're at now. We're really at a low level uh, as as we are today. Given that, you know, in order to hit that 10% goal, what cuts in water usage will the Water Authority be promoting? What we're doing is we're enhancing our conservation program. So if you go to watersmartsd.org, there's a variety of programs that are available and rebates. The next increment of savings, because we've done so much the last 30 years, is really in the landscape area. So if homeowners want to remove turf from their yard, let's say it's turf they don't use, there are rebates to help do that. And there are also rebates and other programs that will target, uh, like, say, HOAs, large developments that have lots of turf or grass areas, where landscapers, professional landscapers specifically, can come to a class and get trained on other ways to help communities reduce their water use. And how will the Water Authority get that message to water users? We are ramping up our outreach communications program. So we've made our website easier to use. There's more information on the homepage to look at ways to get rebates and incentives. And then partnering in the community, doing outreach uh, with our member agencies, because the member agencies, and we have 24 of them, they're really on the front line with the customer. So 
When you go to a, a water agency's website, there's information. Sometimes they will do bill stuffers. There's just different ways to get messaging out to the community. And like I mentioned, the July measurement of how we did the first you know, half of the month of July, it's not really an accurate measure of how we're going to do because it takes time to get all of these programs and these activities up and running to get the message out. And as you mentioned, you know, your agency has some rebates available to help people decrease their water usage. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Sure. The big savings opportunity is really outdoors. And in the last route, we saw that the water that was saved or that wasn't used was really because people turned off their irrigation systems outdoors and didn't use that water, or they put in landscapes that used a lot less water. So that's still what we're targeting. It's kind of the, the last area, you know, indoors, uh, we have water efficient devices. There's the toilets, the shower heads and all those things. And those are pretty standard across the region. So looking at outdoors and ways to save is the next increment of savings. And the agency is working on efforts to install low flow toilets in low income communities and has a variety of other drought focused programs. Could you tell us more about this? Sure. We are partnering with SDG&E on a program to do that. And so there are pockets of the community still left where financial incentives will help replace any of the toilets that are still out there that use uh, more water to flush. And getting those devices into homes and different places pretty much guarantees you water savings because it's a mechanical way to save water. It's not a behavioral change. It's every time you flush, you're using less. And so that's a way to guarantee savings. And tell us again where people can go to get more information about those programs. Watersmartsd.org will give you all the information you need for rebates and other programs. I've been speaking with San Diego County Water Authority Water Resources Manager, Jeff Stevenson. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The far-right group Defend East County burst onto the local scene last spring in response to racial justice protests. KPBS's Amitha Sharma says now the group associated with racism and conspiracies is trying to be a player in San Diego politics. The genesis of Defend East County is this. It launched in the late spring of 2020 after a band of mostly white men pledged to protect La Mesa businesses from Black Lives Matter protesters. And then the group's founder, Justin Haskins, live-streamed from the January 6th insurrection. At one point that day, he called it our constitutional duty to overthrow a tyrannical government. Yes, I was at the Capitol on January 6th. No, I did not take uh, part in it. No, I do not agree with it and I'd rather just move on from that. But the 37-year-old construction manager still doesn't believe President Joe Biden was legitimately elected, and he believes false QAnon theories. I mean, if you're asking me if I believe that there is a group of elitists in Washington, D.C. and in Hollywood that run a pedophile ring, absolutely, I believe that. At least one DEC member has openly discussed violence against black people. Federal prosecutors say San Diegan Gray Zamudio bragged in a text about pulling his Glock on a black person he called the N-word and smashing on some BLM. Zamudio is serving a two-year sentence in federal prison for firearms violations. Local black activist Tasha Williamson says some DEC members have made racially tinged violent threats against her and her son. They put this out 
on social media and people are calling for my lynching. And then there is this undated video on Twitter of Haskins asking a black passenger what plantation he was on. Haskins claims the comments were taken out of context but wouldn't elaborate. Despite all this, DEC has proven to be relevant in mainstream San Diego County politics. At one point in 2020, DEC boasted a Facebook following of more than 20,000 members. The platform eventually suspended the group due to violent racist rhetoric on its page. But by then, both Republican Daryl Issa and Democrat Amar Kampanajar had sought DEC's endorsement in the race for the 50th District Congressional seat. Brian Levin is director of the Center for the Study of and extremism at Cal State San Bernardino. These social media platforms like Facebook have enabled people who would just be banging a kettle on a corner somewhere to use the power of symbols, memes, and videos to create fear on anecdotes and identify villains. Haskins insists DEC's main purpose is simply to promote traditional conservative values. We want to protect you know, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion. We want to protect the Second Amendment. We, you know, we want to keep the government out of our homes with the Fourth Amendment. And DEC wants to get like-minded people elected. Every local candidate that we supported won. He says they include Santee Mayor John Minto, Santee Council Members Dustin Trotter and Laura Coval, and Cajon Valley Union School District Trustee Jim Miller. KPBS reached out to them and other GOP leaders such as Paula Witzel, chairwoman of the Republican Party of San Diego County. They either declined comment or didn't return calls. Mesa College political science professor Carl Luna believes their silence is an acknowledgement that DEC DEC's radicalism has gone mainstream within the party. He calls the strategy dangerous. You call out your crazies and you don't bring them into the coalition. As local Republicans avoid addressing DEC, a more militant offshoot of the group has materialized. It's called the Exiled Patriots and led by another local resident, Mike Forzano, who did not respond to interview requests. Haskins says he condemns the Exiled Patriots because of their violent rhetoric. That is literally everything I have tried to avoid and make sure that we never will go down that path. But Luna says January 6th shows DEC is a gateway group to that path. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, welcome. It's good to be here. Now, founder Justin Haskins estimates DEC membership at six to 8,000. Is there any way to verify that number? No. And the reason is because the membership really exists, according to Haskins, across these different social media network platforms. So they are on Facebook now, and groups like DEC are also on other social networks like Gab and Parler. But Facebook took that page down, the DEC page down, when it had 22,000 followers. Why exactly did Facebook take the group page down? Because there was content on the Facebook page, DEC's Facebook page, that discussed violence against Black Lives Matter protesters and against women. And someone or some people locally 
alerted Facebook to those posts as well as a video on the DEC page that was produced by QAnon last October before the 50th district congressional race. That video referred to then Republican candidate Daryl Issa, who ended up winning, as a protector of child abusers and I believe an opponent of Donald Trump and, and he, he is not. Is it possible that many of the thousands of followers that used to have came on board before the January 6th insurrection that Haskins took part in, before DEC revealed its true colors, so to speak? Well, it's certainly possible that they joined before January 6th. I mean, they did join before January 6th. But it is a stretch to say before DEC revealed its true colors. Way before January 6th, many DEC members had already revealed their willingness to talk about violence against racial justice protesters and like images showing people behaving violently toward people of color and their belief in conspiracy theories. Have any East County political leaders come out against DEC? Well, Democrat Amar Kampanajar met with DEC last fall while running for Congress from the 50th District. He regrets that he did that. He's running for mayor of Chula Vista. And regarding DEC, he said he doesn't want to give the platform any attention or any legitimacy, especially now that it's known that some of the members, uh, including Haskins, were in D.C. on January 6th. That said, he also was very, very blunt. He said it's both ironic and tragic that, and these are his words, that the Trump fanatics who called him a terrorist trying to infiltrate Congress were in fact the terrorists who infiltrated Congress on January 6th, killing officers in the process. It seems from your report that no one of either party in San Diego wants to talk about the Defend East County organization. Can you figure out why not? I think that many, uh, maybe in the San Diego County Democratic Party, uh, within the Urban League of San Diego and the NAACP local chapter, I think there is a very strong belief that, that by speaking about them, you're giving them some sort of legitimacy as as Amar Kampanajar told me. So I think it, it, it's a fair interpretation that they don't want to speak about them because they just don't want to give them any oxygen. But then again, some of the experts you spoke with say they feel it's important for respected political leaders to speak out against groups like DEC. What's their position? Well, I think the experts believe that it's their moral obligation to speak about these groups to to publicly condemn these groups because of the moment that we're in. I mean, the FBI has said that the number one threat to the United States is domestic terrorism. We have an example of a one-time member of DEC, Gray Zamudio. He's from San Diego. He has openly discussed the need for vigilante militias. He's talked about crushing liberal terrorists. He's talked about him himself being ready to terrorize. He's talked about smashing BLM and pulling a gun on a black person whom he referred to with the N-word. He right now is in prison on firearms violations. And it should be noted that when the FBI picked him up, 
They picked him up right around the time of the BLM protests in La Mesa on August 1st last year. And prosecutors wrote uh, in some documents that Zamudio was picked up out of concern for the safety of people exercising their First Amendment rights. And so experts say that, look, you know, we're about to come up on these 2022 congressional elections and 2024 presidential election. If we have groups and politicians in our backyard who believe in the big lie, who believe in conspiracies, we need to know that and we need to condemn that. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. California has turned to an unusual partner for COVID-19 response, the same company that built former President Donald Trump's border wall along the state's southern border. The no-bid $350 million contract has frustrated immigration advocates and community health care leaders. State government reporter Scott Rod has this Capitol Radio investigation. It's no secret Governor Gavin Newsom despised Trump's border wall. Here he is on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 shortly after taking office. But 2,000-mile wall is a monument to stupidity, not just vanity, to stupidity. It doesn't solve the problem. Trump hired a company called SLSCO to build his wall in California. Two years later, the Newsom administration hired the same company for COVID-19 response. The state desperately needed medical workers, and SLSCO had pivoted to healthcare services during the pandemic. The company provided thousands of medical staff who were sent to vaccination sites around the state. They also helped screen and immunize nearly 60,000 migrants at the border, in the shadow of the wall SLSCO built to keep them out. It does raise questions about how that decision took place. Pedro Rios directs the U.S.-Mexico border program for the American Friends Service Committee. To me, what it shows is just a, a lack of historical memory to be able to hold accountable those companies that were profiting from that type of uh, business. We wanted to ask Newsom about this, but his office did not respond to our request for comment. SLSCO and the State Department of Public Health declined interview requests. In a statement, the company said it was honored to provide medical staffing to California. In an email, the Department of Public Health said SLSCO provided quality staff, many of whom were bilingual. The department claims this helped advance the state's effort to test and vaccinate underserved communities. Britta Guerrero is CEO of the Sacramento Native American Health Center. She disagrees. We would have never considered a partnership like that. The Native American Health Center helped organize vaccine clinics, including ones for undocumented Californians. Unbeknownst to Guerrero, the state sent 10 workers from SLSCO to staff the events. She says that could have jeopardized relationships with vulnerable patients who already distrust the healthcare system. We represent black and brown communities, underserved folks, and keeping our communities and our patients safe is at the center of who we are. And so working with an organization that has done the opposite, it's hurtful. Cap Radio spoke to multiple county public health departments who said staff from SLSCO served an important role in their vaccination efforts. 
Here's Sarah Boss, Madeira County's public health director. We found that the quality of the staff was very good. They provided excellent service to our community and our residents on par with our expectations of our regular staff in Madera County. Boss says she was unaware of the company's background building border walls. She added that her top priority as a public health director is to ensure residents have quality care and access to the vaccine. In Sacramento, I'm Scott Rod. You can read the entire investigation into California's partnership with border wall company SLSCO at capradio.org. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. California was most likely named for a character in an early 16th century Spanish novel. Queen Calafia was a mythical black warrior who ruled an island of Amazon women. Most Californians don't know this origin story, but a Bay Area theater company hopes to change that. For the California Report, Azul Dahlstrom Ekman tells us about a performance welcoming Queen Calafia back to the state after a 500-year absence. I'm here at Dunphy Park in Sausalito, watching Queen Calafia ceremoniously step off her boat and onto California soil for the first time in hundreds of years. Let the reunification ceremony begin! Her story is being interpreted today by the Antenna Theater. The actor playing Queen Calafia is radiant in yellow and gold. She's covered in jewels and surrounded by an all-female entourage carrying spears. Here to greet her are the Cal Alumni Marching Band and Loyal Subjects. She's stone quiet, though. Maybe it's culture shock? A man named the Cocky Californian brings her up to speed. Take a look at this industrial mite right here. Mm. Mm, doing some heavy lifting. Sixth largest economy in the world, baby! Huh. That's a little different than the California she's used to. Sabed que a la diestra mano de las Indias hubo una isla llamada California. Queen Calafia was a character in Las Sergas de Esplandian, an early 16th century romantic adventure novel written by García Rodríguez de Montalvo. Calafia wore armor made of fish bones, used weapons made of gold, and commanded an army of griffins. On the right-hand side of the Indies, there was an island called California, which was very close to the region of the earthly paradise. This island was inhabited by black women, and there were no males among them at all, for their lifestyle was similar to that of the Amazons. The novel was so popular in Spain that when Spanish conquistadors reached the tip of the Baja Peninsula in the 1530s, they thought they'd found the fabled island of California. The name California stuck, but Queen Calafia isn't as well known. She's only appeared in popular culture in fits and starts. And people don't even agree on how to pronounce her name. <laughs> can I make an entrance or can I make an entrance? You don't have a clue who I am, do you? My name's Calafia, as in California. Despite being played by Whoopi Goldberg in a Disneyland California adventure movie, 
Many Californians still don't know the woman behind the name. But the actors at today's performance are clearly trying to change that. Raylene Gorham lives on a houseboat in Sausalito and only learned about Calafia a couple months ago. I found it really intriguing and I really would like to celebrate this part of California history. I think it's the right time. Even Kizaya Salah, an actor playing part of Calafia's entourage, is new to the story. And when was the first time you heard about Queen Calafia? Uh, I'm not gonna lie, like two weeks ago. She related the rediscovery of Queen Calafia to a Swahili word, Sankofa. So Sankofa means to look back at our ancestors in order to move forward and make sure that we're not repeating history, you know? That's also a part of Sankofa. At this time in the United States, racist statues are being removed and schools renamed. And many here today see Queen Calafia's story as part of a nationwide movement to re-examine our history. That includes the actress playing the queen herself, Dee Nathaniel. This isn't me as Queen Calafia, but just me as what Dee would say. I think that corrective uh, representation is really important because um, we're looking at the new generation of, of black girls and women of color coming up and it's really important for them to see positive role models. Chris Hardman, who directed the celebration, thinks the Calafia story is essential knowledge for every Californian. It's our origin story. It's like, it's like if you've decided not to read uh, Genesis, <laughs> you know, and you, were, uh, and you were a Christian. And he thinks that theater is the right medium. I think that's what, you know, the potential of the theater trick is, is it brings the history in and it makes it like, puts it right in front of you and it says it's live. Deal with it. Get in there. Understand this. And understand the story behind our state's name. I am Queen Calathia and I've come home. For the California Report, I'm Azul Dahlstrom Ekman in Sausalito.